But continuing on this morning um, in this series called Disciple, as we've been discussing each, each one of the disciples, each one of the apostles that Jesus called, uh, those whom he named apostle, those that he would, he would call, those that he would send out as his messengers, as his delegates, uh, those that he would send out with his authority and his power to do the thing which he called them to do, which is to make more disciples um, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, teaching them everything that he had taught them. And we have in God's Word, we have in the New Testament, we have that teaching, we have what Jesus taught as far as his disciples received it and then gave it. And then here we are today as we look at each one of these individual men from a long time ago and what we can learn from them I want to read again this list of men in Luke chapter 6 as we begin. It says in verse 12, he says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So fifth in this list, and fifth in just about every list that you read of the disciples, you find the man named Philip. And this morning, as we start to begin looking at Philip's life and who this man is and what we can learn from him, we find that Philip, in many ways, is the naysayer. He's the realist in the group. He's the one that that would say, hey, you know, this thing in, in real life, in reality, it's going to be a difficult thing to do. It may not work. Philip's the guy in the group that's just, you know, I don't know about that. I think many of us can likely relate to that. We may be that person. I tend to be a realist sometimes. I can be a pessimist sometimes. I can see the worst in a situation, and then I can apply that worst part of it to the whole situation and just, hey, this thing is not going to work. But I can also, conversely, I can sometimes be the faithful, but I think we can all relate in some way to the naysayer in the group. And sometimes we may say, hey, we need that guy in the group to give us the real picture of something. But in context here for what we're going to look at this morning, we didn't need that guy other than to learn what not to do in a way from him. But a few things about Philip here is that his name in the Greek was uh, Philippos, and it means lover of horses. A lot of times in the, in the Bible, you read someone's name, and it, it, is, it is characteristic of who that person is, right? God renamed people throughout his word to be characteristic of who he called them to be. You know, Jacob, his name meant supplanter which he most certainly was that. But God changed his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And you see that in the person of Jacob. You also see that in the nation of Israel. But here you have Philip, and his name means lover of horses. So let's just take it. Philip probably just maybe loved horses. It's not the point of this message at all. But food for thought. He was from uh, Bethsaida, uh, which is also the city of Andrew and Peter. Um, he's not to be confused, though, with Philip the Evangelist. In Acts chapter 8, you read of Philip the Evangelist. He's the one that goes and he uh, shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch you know, and baptizes him. Um, 
oftentimes you can get these two men um, mixed up. But Philip was very linear. He was very often pragmatic. But he also struggles to see the big picture. Many of us, I think, can, we can miss the view from the blimp and we can get caught in the weeds of a thing. And because of the weeds, we don't see everything we need to see and we try and make a decision in the middle of the weeds based on what we see. What's the saying? It's um, you don't see the forest for the trees. This was Peter, or not Peter, I'm sorry. If I do that through this message, in my practice here, I said Peter so many times when I meant to say Philip. So if you hear me say Peter, most likely I mean Philip. Just to preface that for everyone. But some might have called Philip of killjoy. But as as Philip, see, I almost did it again. As Philip was called in John chapter 1, we read how he was called, but then what his response was and what Philip did do immediately after. It says, the next day, in John chapter 1, verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, that's Jesus, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And the text seems to include here that Jesus saw Philip, he found him and just said, follow me. And then scripture would indicate that Philip just followed. But we also know that Philip was a disciple of John the Baptist as well. And whenever he encounters the Christ, he's following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist would be the one pointing to the Messiah. Most likely, Philip was present when John the Baptist would say, Behold, here comes the Son of God. And he meets him. Jesus calls him, says, Follow me. And Scripture indicates that he followed. But then what does he do next? In verse 45, it says, Philip then found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So immediately, the text would indicate that Jesus found Philip, called Philip. He responded to follow Jesus. And then immediately following that, Philip then finds Nathanael. And then tells him, we have found. You see the finding? None of this is by accident. Jesus didn't just stumble upon Philip. But he found him right where he was at. He placed a call in his life and he responded. And in that response, Philip finds Nathaniel. I wouldn't say that he just fell upon Nathaniel. Most likely he knew Nathaniel, but he knew someone close by that needed to know what he now knew. And he went and found this person and told him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Everything that we have ever known or been taught about the coming of the Messiah, we've found him. And then scripture would tell us that even in Nathaniel's skepticism, Philip told him to come and see. In John 1, verse 46, the second half of it, Philip said to him, just come and see. So we don't need the big picture. If you learn anything right at the onset for Philip, is oftentimes, though, we'll see, he doesn't see the forest for the trees. He can get caught in the weeds of things, and we can see how we can respond to there. But right here, as we read about Philip, his call that's been placed on his life, how he went and followed after Jesus, and in that following, he went and told someone close to him, hey, you need to come and see what I've seen. 
I can't, Nathaniel, I, you may have questions. You're probably a skeptic. Think about that in that moment. Put yourself in that situation for just a moment. You're a Jew living in, in, in Judea, in Israel. You're under Roman oppression. You're desiring, you're looking for a Messiah. You want the Messiah that you understand him to be to come and to mow down the Romans, free you from your oppression. But year after year after year after year after year, it never happens. It doesn't come to pass. Now all of a sudden your friend, someone you know, comes and tells you, hey, we found that guy. You might have some questions, wouldn't you? We're going to talk more on Nathaniel here next week. But we can relate to that side of it, just the skepticism. I don't know if I believe you yet, but Philip at this point in time didn't try to give a lot of detail, didn't try and explain a bunch of theology. This is why he simply told his friend, come and see. See, his disciples and as we're to go out into this world and we're to make disciples of all nations. And we think about that, that call, it can seem overwhelming in some ways. Really, I've got to go to the nations and I've got to make disciples. I scarcely understand what it means to be a disciple right now. From Philip, I would say that's okay. Every one of us in this room, we're all being conformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another is what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. But if we understand right where we're at, what do we know and what have we come to believe as disciples we know and have come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is who he says he is. And he did what he said he would do and what scripture would say he would do to redeem the world. If we know that and believe that truth, what we can do with that truth, if we don't understand everything else, is we simply go to the world and we tell them, hey, come and see what I have seen and has changed my life. Church, in some ways, that's the most simple form of evangelism. Yes, we do want to grow in our learning. We want to grow in discipleship, grow in our understanding of God's word and the gospel, the implications of the gospel. And we want to answer questions that people have about the Bible and all these things. But we don't have to have answers to everything the world would ask us. All we have to have is a willingness and a boldness to go into the world and to simply tell them, if I don't know the answer to the question, what I want you to do is to come and see. What I have learned and the things that I still have to learn, I'll learn with you if you will just come and see. And that forms a bond of discipleship between two people. And that can exist right now. For many of us in the room that, that we're not connected maybe in a way that we feel as if we should be connected. And on the other side of it, we have members in the room that, that are fully connected, but you know someone that's not as connected as you think they should be, or you know they should be, go to that person. Hey, come and see what I know to be true for where I'm at. What I don't know, let's study together. And then that's discipleship. We find that in Philip right here at the very beginning. But now, let's look, at, let's look at Philip the realist, though, the naysayer. Let's look real quick at the negative side of being caught in the weeds and not seeing the big picture. Two things here that we'll look at in Philip. One, starting with the realist. In John chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, we'll read a few verses there. 
This story is likely familiar to most of us. This is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus is going out to have this teaching for his disciples. Oftentimes it's thought of that Jesus prepared for this thing and the large crowds that were coming, but Scripture to me doesn't indicate that he prepared for this teaching to be for 5,000 people. Jesus was teaching his disciples. All the people that knew and heard of Jesus came and to hear, and you all of a sudden you have this situation to where you have this multitude of people who are present. And then to care for that multitude, given the hour of the day, it's what are we going to feed them? How are we going to help them out? Becomes the question. But beginning in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip specifically, note who he's speaking to, But Jesus said to Philip, he said, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then John includes this point. Many times in John's gospel, he includes some detail to give us a little bit further insight into what's happening. So in verse 6, John makes it a point to say, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So John points out, Jesus knew what's going to happen. Jesus knows what he's going to do here. But yet he says to Philip, In order to test him, hey, what do you think? Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, test in the Greek, as I look at this, is pyrazo. And there's a wide range of meaning for this word depending on context as you're looking at Scripture. It can mean to attempt something, to put something to trial, to see what someone may say or see what someone may do. Simply put, Jesus may be testing Philip just to see what he would say on a matter. But it can also be a test of faith. But oftentimes this word can also be used to tempt. But we know Jesus is not tempting Philip here. But we see often this word used as the enemy may tempt us in some way. But for the text, why would Jesus test Philip in this regard? Now it may be that he's testing his faith and what he would say to give us a picture here from John that we may have this lesson. It also could simply be because Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, I mean, it's right there. Jesus is teaching in this area. It could just simply be that, hey, Philip, man, you're from this area. Hey, where's a good place that we could go get enough food to feed all these people? Potentially could be the request. But aside from that, this is how Philip answers in verse 7. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. To even get a bite, some translations say. But 200 denarii, so a denarii was a day's wage. So 200 days's, days's? Days's wages? (laughs) Say that 10 times really fast. I'm not going to try it. But 200 days' wage. I mean, that's a lot of money in that day and age. I mean, that's a lot of money today. Today, I don't know about you, but if I think of roughly two-thirds of my annual salary, and now here Philip is saying that wouldn't even feed these people. It wouldn't even give them a bite, much less fill their, fill their belly. I mean, in, in some ways, we can look at that. We look at it pragmatically. We look at the situation And we're right in the middle of it here, and we see all these people. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is asking us, hey, 
what would we do with, about food here? Where could we go to get enough bread? And, and Philip didn't even answer his question. Philip didn't say, hey, this is where we might could go. Philip just says, there's no place we can go. He doesn't address the place or the actual question. What he enters into that for Jesus is from a monetary standpoint, he says it doesn't matter if there's a place over here to buy that much bread. There's not enough money in our purse to buy that much bread. But you see how Philip is bound by what he knows, what he sees, and what he understands. And in some ways, we can look at that and we can relate. Like, absolutely, I, I'm, I'm with you, Philip. That's, that's difficult. But when we're caught in the weeds and we forget who we're with, that will become our response. I would say for my life, many times I can respond that way when I forget who it is that's leading me and guiding me and calling me to things. Is I can view this world, I can view ministry, I can view my position from my position. I can view it from my ability to do a thing instead of the ability of the one that empowers me to do what he's asking me to do. And here you have Philip. This isn't the first thing that Jesus has done. This isn't the first miracle that we come to that Philip has seen. But yet here it is. He's in this situation. He's bound by his own understanding, his own view of it. And Jesus asked him a question to test him to see what he would say. And his response is not even to answer the question. It's to interject more of a dilemma. So Philip thought small instead of big. I do think of, the, of what we're doing here, Super Sunday Giving. It comes to mind. None of this was planned, church. None of this was planned. But I think of that. I think of that conversation. I think of Brandon being in a conversation, hearing of a need. And if he's thinking small, his thought is going to be, what little can we give? But his thought and his response was, hey, we'll fund the whole thing. I don't have to have the view from the blimp right now, but I understand that we can meet that need. And then when we get more of the picture, then it grows from there. But here, Philip thinks small. In many ways, you could say that Philip leaned on his own understanding. Now, how often in our days do we lean on our, understand, on our own understanding on a thing? I've done it a lot of times in my life. What does Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 say? It says plainly, says, do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will lay out for us. But oftentimes we go through this life, and we're walking very crooked paths because we're going about this life and walking these paths on our own understanding of how we are to walk. But the proverb would tell us, don't lean on our understanding of a thing. Look to the Lord's will in a thing. Look to his faithfulness and his working. Acknowledge him in it, and he will give clarity to where we go. But how do we even discern those things sometimes? I'm reminded of Psalm 119, 105. The psalmist says, your word is... It's what? A lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. But at the time of that writing, he didn't have a spotlight he's referring to illuminating the way. What they had was a candle or a lantern that illuminated just feet in front of him. 
oftentimes we go to the Lord and we go to his word or we go to his people and we want an outlook. We want to see all of this. We want to get out of the weeds, yes. We want the view from the blimp. We want to know where we're going to be out here. And we think that that knowledge is going to give us the clearest picture that we can have on how to get there. Yes, that would be great. If I could see in 20 years, this is what I'm going to do. But what if I were to see that, but also see all the things that the Lord has for me to go through in order to get there? And my will not aligning with his, I don't want to go through those things. That's why it's feet at a time. The Lord illuminates for you and I what we need to know when we need to know it. We're on a need-to-know basis to an extent with the Lord. He gives us his word to tell us what's going to happen. How he desires for us to get there is determined by him and our daily walk with him. And as we do that, we're affirmed by him in the moment. We don't think small because we understand his bigness. How big of a God. Philip here didn't, it wasn't landing on him who he was with. And then as we continue here in verse Verse 8 and 9 says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Philip was not alone in this. But here you have some barley loaves and some fish. And just real quick, not to spend a lot of time here, but if you think fish at this time, the word for fish I mean, it's, I mean, it's not a lunker. It's not a marlin. These fish are small fish. Think of this little boy. Why would he have two 10-pound bass for just this little boy? No, he's got two barley loaves and some fish. These are small fish. These aren't big fish. So again, Andrew, just like Philip, uh, yeah, there's, this isn't going to do much. But likewise, he forgot who he was with. And we know the story. They get the baskets and they bring the baskets and then they hand it to Jesus. And Jesus does what Jesus does. Jesus prays. He gives thanks. He blesses that meal. And then he hands it out. And the disciples go. Jesus doesn't walk around and miraculously pull things out of this basket. No, he gives the baskets to his disciples to go in give these things away as they move through the crowd of 5,000 people plus the women and the children and they're reaching into a basket and they're giving it out. Imagine the moment. We read through this story throughout our lives. How much does it really settle on our heart? What happened? You're walking through a crowd. You're reaching into a basket that's got bread and some fish and it's never ending and it just continues to go and go, what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. This is fantastic. As you're learning the lesson and you're being reminded of who you're with and what he can do despite your infirmity. The point in this story for me is that God's output will always exceed our input. 
God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine if we're just faithful and we're trusting of him and what he's called us to do. If we would get out of the weeds, look at the view from the blimp, understand who the one is that's sending us out and what he can do among us, we won't be fearful of what we can't do because we can't do a lot of things. But God, through us, does wondrous things. As Jesus told his disciples, greater things than these you will do when I send you out with the power of my spirit among you. But we forget the spirit that's been given. We forget who we were with. So disbelieving doesn't mean, though, that God is not going to act. We can disbelieve and we can lack faith, but that doesn't mean God's not going to do something. But if we disbelieve and we lack faith, it does mean we're likely going to miss what he does do. That was what Philip struggled with there. And the fact that Philip struggled there with that would indicate for me how he struggles and what we're going to look at next. So in John chapter 14, if you have your Bibles. So we have Philip, the, the realist there in John 6, but in John chapter 14, we have Philip now, we'll call him the slow learner. The slow learner. Can we relate? Amen? Anybody? Slow learner like me? So in John chapter 14, this is just a wonderful segment of Scripture, what Jesus is telling his disciples here. So it's beginning in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he says this, if you had known me, notice the tense. It's important, the verb tense. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, verb tense change, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You see the emphasis, the, how Jesus is rewiring where they're at. They're all slow to learn to this point. This is the end of it. They're heading into the end of their time with their teacher. And here he is directly rewiring the things that they have missed. You, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Where does the emphasis go to? Not Jesus in this moment. It goes to the Father. Now, here's Philip, verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, how can Philip say such a thing? In this point in time, in all that he has seen, all that he has experienced, all that he has done, the story that we just read, what Jesus just said to him in Philip is, hey, just show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? He's not talking to the twelve. He's talking to Philip. Brother, I've been with you all this time, and you still don't know me? He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, I'm not, I've not done any of these things apart from the Father. I've not done anything among you apart from the glory of God displayed in me. He says, I am the manifestation of the Father among you. It is by his power and his might that I do all of these things. Believe on account of the works themselves. But Jesus and God are one. They're one not only in nature or in essence, but they're one in operation. And the way they do and the things that they would do. The works of Jesus bear witness to the Father's unlimited power. Not just in this universe, but unlimited power right here among us. Right here in this place. We think of power as something that's always tangible. We think of power as something that's over there that we might get to at some point in time. But where the Spirit is, that's where the Lord is. Because Jesus said, it's better that I go, that you have His Spirit. The Helper is going to come, the Counselor, the Guide. You're going to receive power when He comes. But that power is a result of being connected with God, the Father, Jesus said, believe in God, but he says, believe also in me, for we are one. As Jesus is, the time of his departure is drawing near, and he's rewiring his disciples, rewiring Philip to understand this truth. I'm not always going to be present, but I'm going to give you my presence, and it's coming from the Father. Paul very eloquently shares a similar sentiment in Romans eleven thirteen. He says, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. To the Ephesians it is. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. Church, we want to see God do wondrous things. We got to get out of the weeds. Now, how do we get out of the weeds, right? Because we have the coming and going of our lives. We have things that we're responsible for. We have things that we're supposed to do. We have jobs. We have to provide for our family. We have to do these things. We got bills we got to pay. Money's not going as far as it is. We get caught up in the weeds and we get bogged down, overwhelmed by this world because we're forgetting who we're walking with and we're forgetting who sends us out. Paul says, I count it all rubbish. If we look at the things that we do, the weeds in which we live as the thing in which we live and what we live for, we're going to be blind and we're going to forget and we're going to struggle to see that his output will outweigh our input. And if we view it that way, we're going to quit inputting things. And then we go nowhere. So Philip, in his own way, as we look at him this morning specifically, he had a tremendous awe problem. He didn't see the awesome nature of God. He saw the difficulty of situations, and he applied that difficulty to his own life. Instead of being in awe and wonder of Jesus and all of the things that Jesus would do, he lost his awe. Either that or he hadn't found it yet. But this can also be true of us too. So if we take away a couple things from Philip, one is that we have an awe problem. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, 
These are an awe problem. If we start looking at ourselves, we become in awe of ourselves. Look at all the things that we can do. Because when we get caught up in the weeds and we're running the rat rat race and we're keeping all these things afloat, though it can be exhausting, at some point we can be, man, I'm, I'm rocking it right now. I'm keeping these things going. I'm tired at the end of the day, but we have an awe problem when we are in awe of ourselves instead of attributing that holding up to the Lord and glorifying Him in that. But God ceases to be your Lord and is reduced to being a servant whenever we have an awe problem and we're self-sufficient. Because are we always self-sufficient? Do we ever come to a point where we just toss our hands up? Oh, I, I cannot do this anymore. All the plates that we try and spin and hold up, at some point we lose our rhythm and all these things come crashing down. But when they crash down, what do we do? Where do we go? As we go to the one that we now understand can do and can help. Some of the most dangerous times in our lives, church, This is not in my notes. This just comes to mind. Some of the most dangerous times in our lives is when things are good on this earth. Church, that should be a rewiring of our American thought. Some of the most dangerous times and situations that we can find ourselves in is when our lives are good according to our definition of good. We'll be slower to respond. We'll get caught up in just the comfort of where we're at. But times aren't always good. Remember from a couple weeks ago, good men make good times, good times make soft men, soft men make bad times. Bad times will happen. But when that happens, and they all come crashing down, then we won't, Lord, where are you at? And we want him then to serve us. So we have an all problem. Our lack of faith is an all problem. Fear of man is an all problem. If we're constantly fearing what other people think of us and what other people may do or respond to us, that is an all problem. We're putting focus on other people and on the one and what he says about us. Our pessimistic attitudes sometimes, our grumbling and complaining is an all problem. Again, we're just reading the Exodus account. You have a people, they have an awe problem, and they saw some awesome things, if you've been reading with us. I've never seen water part. I've never seen a pillar of fire come down out of heaven at night and guide me as I'm walking, or a pillar of cloud just keep on going before me. I've never seen it. That's flipping awesome. But then we get into the wilderness, we get into the desert, and life becomes difficult for us, and we have an awe problem. We forget all that we have seen, and then we begin to complain. And a complaining heart is, again, looking inwards. One of the couple other things, materialism is an awe problem. If we're looking to the things that we have, the things that we can buy, we put ourselves in debt for stuff that's just fun. I can struggle with materialism. I like gadgets, love gadgets. I've got so many gadgets, got gadgeting happening all around me. But if I'm starting looking to those things to, to fulfill a need in some way, I'm getting things out of place. I'm having an all problem. But ultimately, sin is an all problem. It causes us to do what's right in our own eyes. That was the next verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord 
Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The very next verse is simply, do not do what is wise in your own eyes. But that is the nature of sin. As we glorify ourselves, we're in awe of ourselves and what we're able to do. Sin lies that we are capable to do the things that would fulfill us. The second thing is we must recapture the awe and majesty of our great God. If we have an awe problem, we got to recapture it and put it back on the Lord. Remember what Jesus told the apostles in John chapter 14. Let's read verse 6 and 7 again. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, though, from now on, from this point forward, church, from today on, if you struggled yesterday with it, from today, you can set your heart and your mind on the Lord. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because I'm with you. I and the Father are one. So if you're lost, if you're wandering aimlessly through this life, you're caught up in the weeds and you don't know where to go, you have no discernment with where to be, Jesus is the way. If you're feeling dead inside, If you just, you just feel lifeless, there's, there's no life, there's no joy about what you're doing. Jesus is the life. If you're believing the lies of the enemies, lies about yourself or what other people may see in you or may say about you or believe you should be this whenever you're the thing that you are, Jesus is the truth. He is the way, he's the truth, he is the life. If we have all of God and it fills our heart it will lead the way. When the awe of God fills our heart, you'll pursue his truth. When the awe of God, get, awe of God gets deep down inside of us, we will find life no matter our circumstances. Ministry will become a blessing. It will not be a burden. When we have awe of God in its proper place, Generosity will become fulfilling rather than frustrating. Life won't be cumbersome. It won't be clouded. It won't be convoluted. It'll be clear. It'll be celebratory. Our lives become Christ-centered, not me-centered. When we have a proper awe of God. I think about the next few moments in what we're about to give and as we take this offering, if we have a proper awe of God, we're gonna respond. We're not gonna fill that bucket for the sake of look at how much I put in this bucket. We're gonna see the big picture that God is doing work among us. And if we understand his output will always exceed our input, then whatever it is we faithfully put into an offering we trust and know that God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine with that. Then any stress or anxiety is removed from our hearts. That is the nature of what Paul tells the Corinthians. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. We will not be cheerful givers if we are in awe of ourselves. But if we're in awe of God, we'll find cheerful forgiving. I'm here to tell you this morning, you do not have to put anything in that basket. But if the Lord so moves you too, 
I pray that you do it faithfully, trusting in what he will do with it. And from that point, anything that we give, our time, our money, our resources, our talents, our gifts, given cheerfully, God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, again, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for, again, just the disciples and these men, and I thank you for their, their humanity, Lord, that we can look and we can relate. And I believe, Lord, that you made it so. You didn't call awesome men. You called uneducated common men to do uncommon things. But as they were led up led on by your spirit, Lord, and empowered by your spirit to do those things. And they had willing hearts as you called the people to provide, give contribution to your tabernacle, your dwelling place among your people. You provided everything that was needed to do the thing that you instructed them to do. But it came from the people and it's the same for us today, Lord. Everything that you've commanded and you require of your people, your church, you've given the ability to do. I pray that we see that and we respond to that, Lord, and we give willingly and faithfully from a willing and faithful heart, Lord, for your glory and the good of those that are around us, Lord. Lord, that you may increase, but I may decrease. I pray that's our heart, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.